You're listening to episode 146 of the Comics Pals. We are a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. We've heard your feedback. We know you want uh, less, less Phil, to be honest. So, hey, we're back. It's just me and Sean. We got rid of him. Um, oh, Marco's here, too. Marco, why don't you say hey? Good job, buddy. Less Phil and less filler on this episode <laughs> of the Comics Pals. It's the all-new Comics Pals, everybody. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other guys are, you know, out there living their best lives, I suppose. And so you are stuck with Pete and I. Uh, happy to bring you the dynamic duo, the best duo. You no, know and I'll, I'm just going to come out and say it. You're Batman. Yeah, I feel more like a Batman than a Robin, at least with you, I would say. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm. Uh, I'm Dick. Yeah, yeah. You would definitely be the original Robin, the more like flamboyant, fun, fun-loving. I'm not afraid to wear boy shorts. There you go. Right. <laughs> not an image I really needed in my head, but uh, carry on. <laughs> um, <laughs> today we're gonna be. You know, we've got some some fun news to talk about. We've got some listener mail for you guys. And, of course, we are back to review House of X number two. Everyone is talking about what Jonathan Hickman is doing. One of my favorite things about Jonathan Hickman is that he is not afraid to big himself up. He is not afraid to talk <laughs> about how great what he's doing is. He knows and, this shit is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are times where you read, you know, a writer – or whoever, it doesn't need to be comics, talking about how great what they're doing is, not really being humble, and it comes across as arrogant, and then you see the material, the content, and it's like, you talked all this stuff about this? This is not that. He has the confidence of, like, a really good rapper who brags, and it's like, no, like, you're good enough that it's, like, it's it's fine. Yep. Like, the braggadocious nature, I'm just like, you've earned it, man. Like, go ahead. Totally. <laughs> Um, it's very, very pleasing what's happening. And I honestly haven't seen a bad word about it. Me neither, which is insane. This is like, when you think about so many things, right? A, it's comics. So the fact that there's like seemingly anyway, universal praise for something at all is pretty unheard of. Yeah. Um, add in the fact of the powder keg of that it's the X-Men who've been away for so long and now they like overhyped it as like their triumphant return and like it could have so easily sucked or been mediocre and been like alright great it's another fucking headline that they made to sell a comic that nobody wants to read and it's like no like this is this reminds me of Doomsday Clock in that being like ah, like I don't know man like it could kind of go either way and then we come out and it's just like we're three issues into this thing and it's been firing on all fucking cylinders you know yeah I think for me being someone who's read a lot of Jonathan Hickman there's not any there wasn't any doubt in my mind that this would be special and when they hyped it as like the next big thing like since since giant size or whatever or since new yeah. since new x-men by morrison that felt real to me be, just because of who it is but never did i imagine that i'd be enjoying it this much but we'll save the the real praise and the real analysis for our review which will come a little bit later i do want to let you guys know of course where you can find us and 
find our reviews for the first two issues. If you missed them, of course, those are House of X number one and Powers of Ten number one. Uh, we are the Comics Pals, and you can get us on all podcast hosting platforms as such. Uh, you can find us on social media at the Comics Pals, and you can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. You can, you know, talk to us about whatever it is that you're interested in, whether it's comics, whether it's, you know, comic book movies, whether it's, you know, you're watching Arrow for some reason and you really want to talk about it. Whatever it is. That would be so random. Someone's like, guys, it's over. I decided it's time. I'm watching all of Arrow. Well, it hasn't ended yet, has it? Oh, I have no idea. I, I know that. Isn't this the last season, though? Isn't that the thing? Yeah, yeah. They're winding it down if it's not over. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I feel like there's one more season, but I don't watch the show, so. I'm so out of touch with that whole sector of, like, of this world, you know? Yep. I uh, I wanted to start the show with a little uh, Sean Soapbox segment, if you'll indulge me. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, we talk a lot on this show about the state of the industry. We talk about, you know, what, what we can do to improve comics. And I think one of the keys to that, and I believe it was, gosh, was it? It wasn't Sabella. Who was... So one of our most recent guests was talking about the role that retailers play in that whole process. Was that Sevy? I feel yeah. like that was during the conversation with Philip Sevy. Yeah, that sounds right. It was Philip Sevy who brought this up. And he was talking about the role that retailers play. And I think we've all heard horror stories about retailers. Retailers that, you know, drive us away from their store for whatever reason, whether they're elitist or, you know, whatever it is. So I recently had an experience that I thought I would share on the show that highlights this. Not going to say the store, not going to say the person, but uh, normally I go to Midtown Comics. And there's another store that I frequent that I go to to hang out with friends. It's not, I don't, I don't buy comics there, but uh, it is a comic book store. I go there for other reasons. And so I got to talking with the owner. Now, this guy... Uh, for the sake of conversation, because I want to call him something, we're going to call him Phil. It's not his name. Phil is a racist, without question. And not only is that the case, but Phil can't help himself but to talk loudly about his sexism and his racism just throughout the day you know if you're there hanging out you're gonna hear this and not only are you gonna hear it but you're gonna be engaged by it he's gonna he's gonna try to engage you with it jesus so if you're if you're there to pick up your your books you know which i've absolutely seen happen now you're gonna have to be regaled with his stories about you know, a certain kind of racism or, you know, at some point uh, he was talking about women's soccer because there was the big, they had the games recently. Yeah, it was the, uh, I don't know enough about soccer to know what it's called, but it's like the finals or whatever. Yeah, whatever their world championship. The world Cup? Yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, women's world cup, I think. Yeah, and he was just, you know, just saying really crappy stuff. And normally I wouldn't tolerate it, but uh, 
I kind of need access to this store. That's such a, I fucking, that's the worst to be put in that situation where it's the kind of thing that you, like, you said, like, you would normally, like, call someone out on that kind of shit, but you're in this place where it's like you're not really, like, you feel unable to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, okay, so then I get kicked out. You know, my friends get kicked out. Now we're not allowed back in. Yeah. Bummer. So kind of have to put up with it. If I didn't, if let's say that I lived in Colorado instead of New York, where I have the only comic book store. Exactly. I have a ton of options here. If I live in Colorado, maybe there's one store within realistic driving distance of me, and I got to put up with this guy. You know, I got to put up with this racism. I got to put up with this sexism, whatever it is. I don't want to go to that store. You know, maybe I get tired of it, right? I've only been going there for a year. What if I've, you know, what if that was the only option I ever had? After a couple years, you get tired of it, you know? Absolutely, dude. Now you're not reading comics anymore. Yeah, I I totally feel like there's truth to that. Because, like, I I know that, like, like, again, like, I've never really had that experience. Because I feel like it's a... a Venn diagram of why, like I'm lucky enough that where I've grown up, I've always lived within driving distance of multiple comic shops. And I've been lucky enough that most of the people that I've interacted with there that were owners or whatever, were like, were not douchebags. Yeah. Uh, which is also, again, just lucky, you know, cause it is such a, a roll of the dice. But like, I also recognize that like, I'm like uh, an alternative looking white dude. So like, they don't look at me and assume, oh, this guy doesn't have comics cred, right? you know? Um, so I've never been, like, called out on that kind of shit. Right. Or, like, had someone try to, like, test me on my knowledge or some shit like that, you know? And, like, I know so many women who've been, like, turned off to uh, at least going to comic book stores sure. because of that, you know? And, like, some of them just buy all their books online and shit because they don't want to go to a store and have some fucking neck beard talking down to them, you know? Absolutely. I can imagine that being a very frustrating thing. And I think all of the fills of the world are harming the industry. I don't I don't necessarily know that it's just as much as any of the other problems. But you got to imagine there are, there are definitely people like this out there who make it so that you don't want to go and uh, – pick your books up and for some people weekly ordering your books online maybe isn't appealing you know where do you do that does it take more time so you don't end up getting them that same week you know so many questions well you also missed out on like the the community element of it like you said like you like to go to the shop and hang out with your friends and stuff you know and like i remember the store that i used to go to in college that was like right literally right on the edge of my campus like I met when I was a new kid at college, I met a bunch of people there, you know, and was like, oh, cool. Like, this is a place I can go hang out and talk about nerd shit or play board games or whatever, you know? And like, if it's not a welcoming, welcoming environment, like you, you're totally right. Like that is you pushing people away. Like you are alienating people. And like, you maybe you are the person who cares enough about the medium or the art or has the interest enough to go seek it out online. But if you don't, if that was your shot and you got pushed out the door, like, why the fuck would you bother? Yeah, that's that's it. You're done. You've been told this isn't a place for me, yep. you know? And like, that's so shitty, man. Like, I remember it's so funny because, like, you bring this up and, like, the shop that I was just describing is called the comic book store in Glassboro. Um, I was friendly with a couple of the guys that work there. And there was uh, an, inc- an incident there once, like, on one of the, like, magic nights uh-huh. where someone, this, like, you know, fucking dude said some 
some racist shit and a girl who was there playing like like called him out on it mm-hmm. and he like you know like yelled her and called her like a fucking slut and everything Whoa. and like the dude who I knew who was working the shop like literally came over and like pulled the guy's chair out and was like get the fuck out was like get wow. the fuck out of here man like and when he was like trying to like argue with them he picked up his fucking cards and went and took them outside and was like come on like let's fucking go this is not a conversation like i don't want to see you in here again <laughs> and that's i was wild. like my man like that's, that's what you got to do man you know it's like you can't tolerate that shit or like you really do like breed a a place where that's like the kind of person that's going to show up yeah well what happens when the store owner himself is that right yeah, like it, you're creating the fucking <laughs> the hive. <laughs> and it's funny because this store also runs magic tournaments, and I go there for cards. Sure. Not magic, but um, and there's a bunch of card players all the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, you never know what you're gonna hear just from the just from the clientele alone. But when the owner yeah. is saying these things, it's like, wow, forget about it. Um, and that is the only like comic book store in that particular area of the Bronx. And it's like, you're just not being served if you don't want to hear that stuff. So, you know, um, it's, it sucks, but, uh, just wanted to throw that out there. A little anecdotal tale for you guys about why it's important that if you're a comic book shop owner or you work there, that you just keep your stuff to yourself. You know, whether you're, you could be a racist, you could be a sexist, you could be an elitist, you could be whatever. Like, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying, keep that shit to yourself. You know, that has nothing to do with you trying to sell people comics. Um, and unfortunately, people can't keep that stuff to themselves. And that's why we have problems on this earth. But, you know, what does that have to do with someone trying to pick up House of X number two? Nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's just like people like that, though, are like they'll take any fucking opportunity they can sure. to spew their shit. And like there's nothing that makes me more uncomfortable and, like, you know how you said, like, they'll try to engage you in that shit? There's nothing that makes me more uncomfortable than when someone, like, comes at you with that energy. And they're like, right? And I'm like, no! Like, what? in what universe do you think we're on the same fucking team on this one, dude? Like, no. Yeah. It's weird, because, I like, no one's going to do that with me. I mean, it happens... It happens in the other way, right? Where someone's like, oh, white people, right? I'm like, sure. No. Yeah. No, not actually, no. Uh, well, I know, like, you said that that, like, really bothers you, too, because it's like, dude, it's like, like, you have, like, family members that are white, you know? It's like... <laughs> and, and also friends that are great people. What the hell is this? Like, just because you had bad experiences or whatever, like, I just, I don't feel that way. But um, I can't imagine, because it's, it's one thing to shut that down, right? I don't, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable or anything. I'm just like, no, I don't feel that way. But the other way, right, like, if I were white... And I had to hear that stuff. If, if that's different, because obviously the, the implications there are much more, you know, terrible, right? Um, so if you're white and you don't have those feelings, but you're bombarded with it by your friends or your peers or whatever, it's like, whoa. Well, as this isn't the racism, pals, uh, we're gonna move feels on. Feels like it sometimes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that story out there for you guys. And uh, yeah, if you've had bad experiences with retailers. Um, for any reason, or, or 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 just people who work at the shop, please do write into the comicspals at gmail.com and talk to us about your experiences. Speaking of writing in, why don't we move on to our listener mail for the week? All right, so this one comes from Carlos, uh, who 
Well, you know what? He addresses it right here. He says, hello, comics pals. First off, I wanted to say thank you for answering my question last week. I'm glad it made for a good conversation for the show. So for this week's question, I wanted to ask, and I'm going to say this week's random question of the week. There you go. Who are some characters you would love to see have a romantic relationship in comics? For example, I've always loved the idea of Batman and Wonder Woman as a couple who are just together without any of the "oh, will this last?" or the uh, "or will they eventually break up?" aspect to it. For me, both characters are so sure of themselves, and in JLA 90 by Joe Kelly, we got a glimpse of what the relationship could actually be like. If you're the type of comic reader who doesn't like relationships in your comics, please explain why so, as I would like to hear that side as well. Thank you for taking my question, and I can't wait to hear your guys' answer to it. Carlos. Um, I will say, uh, we did a whole episode, actually, about relationships in comics uh, earlier this year, I want to say, for Valentine's Day. Um around that time anyway. And uh, we also did a video over on our YouTube channel about our top five uh, relationships in comics. So, um, yeah, no, we're, we're big fans of romance here. <laughs> I feel like people who have that attitude are like, it's such a like emotionally stunted thing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not good down for bad romances, but like good romance is the back of like most backbone of most superhero books. I'm actually down for bad romances. <laughs> you like Lady Gaga? <laughs> Love her, yeah, actually. <laughs> so this is interesting. I am on on principle, like so on its face, don't really love it when two heroes get together too much who whose whose origins aren't that. So like for as an example of what I'm talking about, Cyclops and Jean Grey have been together for 30 years or whatever, right? Right. Uh, off and on, of course, but in, in the literal timeline of of our existence, they've been together longer than I've been alive. So I like that. Spider-Man and Mary Jane, obviously, but I, I'm specifically referring to superheroes getting together. Just because it often doesn't feel like something that will last because it can't last. Um, and unless unless the, the romance between them is something that's been established over decades, it probably will not stand the test of time. Yeah, be a permanent fixture. Even beyond a couple years. Like, the big one that I think about was Storm and Black Panther. That's what I was going to say, yeah. It was fine. It was cool, but it didn't last very long, and I liked it. I was like, oh, I I want this, and then it just didn't last. Um, And it was kind of boring, and I don't know. They just didn't do much with it. And then it ended. So, I, I tend to feel that way. I, uh, another one, Superman and, and uh, Wonder Woman. I was really excited for that book and and that relationship, and then it just ended. Uh, for the well, for the sake of this question, I think I think I would like to answer it with relationships that have not happened. Yeah, I think that's what he's looking for. Yeah, with that in mind, I would love for you guys to tackle this when Marco and Phil are here, just because. Because I, I won't be on the show next week, but uh, I would love to hear what they have to say about this as well. I'll try to bring it back up. I have two answers. One is fake and one is real. Okay, uh, hit me. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see Beast and Tigra get together. Okay. <laughs> of course you do, because you're a furry. <laughs> Listen, man, cut that out. <laughs> and the real answer, no, the fake answer, uh, no, the real answer is I want to see Miles Morales. And Kamala Khan get together. Okay. Yes. 
I understand that they're, you know, they're still in high school or whatever. I'm not, not trying to be creepy. I just really, those are two of my favorite characters. And, um, it could be a lot of fun. And I think that there's inherent drama because she's Muslim and obviously she's not allowed to date and especially not someone outside the faith. Um, this is a relationship dynamic that I actually have personal experience with in my past. So, uh, that would intrigue me. Miles is literally Dominican and black, which is me as well. Um, so I just think that there's a lot of inherent interest there. And then seeing them kind of take on the world together as they grow up and deal with, you know, the, the things that happen when you're at that age, you go to college, whatever it is. I feel like there's a lot of interesting things that could happen there. As long as you don't f- end their relationship with finality too soon. Yeah, yeah. I think even if they don't end up together permanently, but it's like, oh, like they were like sweethearts or whatever, like that could really work out. Like keep throwing the champions together. Like, you know. Yeah, they're, they're it makes sense, right? Together. Like you could see how that could like bud over time. Yeah. And they're so they're so awkward too as characters. I just love that. Yeah, like they're both kind of dorky. Yep. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that I think that's a good one. So what what if we do this? Why don't we do this? I gave my answer. I'm not gonna be on the show next week. Think about it, and then you guys can talk about that next week. I like that. You get a two-parter, Carlos. <laughs> yes, great question. Thank you for writing in. Keep writing in because you're asking really great questions, and we love it. So Brought back the random question of the week, and I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so please do continue writing to us, and uh, we will continue to read what you write. So we're going to move on to the Pals Pulls. Uh, both Pete and I chose Powers of Ten number two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, we've been reviewing it for the last few weeks, so if you're a regular listener, I think you know how we feel about what's been going down so far, but um, I'm all in on the ride that Hickman's taking us on. I'm really excited to see where it goes, and feels good. It's a good time to be an X-Men fan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the ways in which Powers of Ten and House of X are different is very appealing. I love the the way yeah. that Powers of X kind of played out, issue one. Um, but the fact that they do interrelate is also hugely compelling. And it makes me feel like, all right, I don't have to wait super long. Normally, I'm the sort of person where I actually want the wait. I like the, the, the time to sit with the book. This one, I'm aching so much for the answers that I need it to be weekly. And so even though House of X is definitely on its own track and Powers of Ten is on its own track, at least we're getting the genius of what Hickman and Co. are doing on a weekly basis. I, like, kind of can't believe that it's weekly because of how good it is. Yeah. Like, it it really... Because, I don't know. Obviously, we've said on the show in the past that, like, I'm cool with the wait for Doomsday Clock because of the quality level. It just makes me wish that publishers would just do this, like with events like this, like just like sit on it until it's done and like let it get finished for however long it takes and then just release it weekly like this is like and granted, I, I also think it's cool that I've enjoyed Doomsday Clock over the course of a year and we've gotten to talk about it that many times. But like 
this is like I'm on the edge of my seat and I almost can't believe that there's another issue every week. Like every Wednesday I start seeing people tweeting about it and I'm like, Oh fuck. Right. Like yeah. it's again, like, right. I, I can just go read it right now. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a really, really compelling book and I can't believe it's so good and that there's so much of it and that it's so frequent and that like, it feels like the pace of the story is actually really benefiting from how quickly they're releasing it. Not just because I like it, but because it's super complex. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it would be a book that I'd constantly have to be rereading to remember everything if it was month to month. Right. And that's the process that I like. I remember my best experience with an event was during Civil War. And I reread them every single time a new one came out. That's cool. And I'll never I'll never forget that. I'll never forget what that was like and that became my process with events and I don't do it anymore. And the reason I don't do it anymore with the exception of Doomsday Clock is cuz they're just not worth reading again. They're not that good. It's like you do, like there's nothing you need to remember. It's just whatever it is. Um they're not as good and um I don't know, just not as hooked to them. So this it, it feels nice to be genuinely truthfully invested in a marvel event again yeah i i honestly don't think i've been this invested in a marvel event since civil war there you go so i also chose event leviathan number three now event leviathan hasn't necessarily like issue two i don't feel was super great no it's been slow yeah, it didn't, it didn't really move things forward in a way that was satisfying, but I still enjoyed it. I think it's still a good book, and I am looking forward to what Bendis has to say with this title. And of course, Alex Maliev is doing a tremendous job uh, on art. I love yeah. what, he's, what he's putting down, so um, I can't wait for the third one. And we will be reviewing it. The Leviathan Rising, Rising special I thought was really good. And I was really interested in where it was going to go. And I feel like Bendis has kind of taken all the momentum that that book had and like really killed it for me. With I was so invested and now I'm so uninvested. You know what's interesting to me is... So Event Leviathan is, I believe it's six issues, I want to say. That's crazy to me that we're already a third of the way through it and I feel like nothing has happened. Right. Uh, so what's what 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 does it for me is that it's not very long, and yet they still, and yet Bendis is still sort of dragging it out almost. Yeah. In the sense that issue two just didn't do anything really, and I don't understand because then what's going to happen? They're going to resolve things, and it's going to feel like whoa, like why didn't this breathe, you know? Yeah, we, like, race to the finish. Right, but you had an issue two, you had an issue one to take your time and let things cook, and you didn't take it. And that is so common with events these days. I don't know why, but they're they're often shorter. Uh, outside of Doomsday Clock, I don't remember the last event that I read that was, like, 12 issues. So they're often shorter, but they do less. I don't get it. Well, I don't know, dude. Like, this event is having the same problems that Heroes in Crisis did for me. 
where like it's an interesting premise and it's to be like okay like what's going on here like i'm interested in this and then immediately just like treads water yeah okay here's what happened we're gonna explain it all in like one or two issues we're done and it's just like what the fuck we had like three or four issues of just doing the same thing and like you telling me things that you already told me and it's like you compare that to doomsday clock or house slash powers of x slash 10 um and every single issue is important yeah you know, and every issue has established something and moved things forward. Or if it doesn't move things forward, it enhances your understanding of characters or the plot or the themes, you know? Yeah. And, like, you look at this this issue that we're going to review today for House of X, and ostensibly it doesn't really move the plot forward. It's not, it's not like, forward motion in a literal sense. It was, like giving us backstory and like filling in blanks for us. But like, that's meaningful. That is interesting. That raises intrigue and makes you ask questions and makes you care more about the characters and look at the history of everything that's playing into it. And that's interesting. Sure. Versus this, where it's like, I feel like the second issue was just the first issue again from other characters perspectives. It's other characters learning the same information that I learned alongside whoever I learned it alongside in issue one. I don't even remember anymore because yeah. I don't give a fuck. You know, like I'm not engaged with it anymore. Yeah. I feel like checked out, you know, and like every time I go into it, I don't go into it with negativity, but it's like, oh, right. OK, what was happening? Got it. Let's go. And eh, I don't know. He's still got time. I, ho- I hope he pulls the plane up and gets me back in because Leviathan itself is interesting, and I want to know more about them. We'll be back with that next week, so if you want to hear our review, make sure that you come back with us, and of course, you can check out the reviews that we did for the last two issues. So we're going to jump into the news, and Kevin Conroy, back in the news again, last week we talked about the heartwarming story that he had a very special interaction with a fan. Um... This week, something groundbreaking is happening, actually, with Kevin Conroy. The voice of Batman that I think most people have in their mind when they think about the character based on the animated series will finally, after 25 plus years, appear in live action as Bruce Wayne. So, over on the... the the CW, they've got that Arrowverse going on. They're doing a big crossover series. Uh, it's going to be, I think it's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. It's going to be Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Kevin Conroy has been cast. And they haven't they haven't said who he's playing. But it's, it, I mean, it's, you know, he's playing Batman. Uh, <laughs> Joining him in this is actually Burt Ward, who... No way. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. didn't see that part of it. That's yeah, great. Burt Ward is on it. And also, uh, Brandon Ruth, who hmm. played uh, Superman in Superman Returns, is going to play the Kingdom Come version of Superman. I did see that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And so, because this is Crisis on Infinite Earths, and because we know that there will be characters from other Earths... My question for you is, A, how do you feel about this news? But B, what version 
of Batman do you think that Kevin Conroy is playing? Uh, I am excited about this. I think this is really cool. As I said before, like, I don't watch any of the CW shows, but, like, I, I really love Kevin Conroy. I'm a big fan of him, and, you know, um, I'm definitely one of those people that, when I think Batman, like, he's the voice I hear, you know? And, like, by all accounts, like the story we read last week, like, he's a really nice guy and, you know, has a great relationship with his fans and everything. And so I'm I'm super excited to see a guy who's, like, been so loyal to the character and like clearly like has a lot of love that he's gotten to do the role for so long. Um, like get to get the, get to do it, like actually put on the cow and everything, you know, that's really cool. You know? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I don't know if I'll tune in for like, if I know this is like an event, if it's just one episode he's in or whatever, I'll probably watch that and just like get to see him, you know, do it. Uh, but I'm, I'm totally, totally interested to see this happen. It's really cool. In terms of, like, which one he'll play, I mean, I hope we get to see him just, like, put on the cowl and be, like, an an older Batman, but I, I don't think it would be crazy to see him be the Batman beyond Batman, because he is a little older. To Oh, to play Bruce Wayne. Old okay. Bruce Wayne, yeah, you know? And, like, come in and just, like, throw down some wisdom or whatever, you know, to one of the young superheroes. Yeah. That, I think, would be really, really awesome. It would also, based on the casting of Brandon as the Kingdom Come Superman. Batman, I mean, if you, I don't know if you've read that story, but for those of you who have not, in that story, uh, all the characters are older. And right. Bruce is Batman, but he's Batman from an exoskeleton suit. So <sighs> you could have Kevin Conroy get to be Batman, but in a suit. A suit like a... Like a Gundam type. Yeah. Bat Gundam. <laughs> yep. uh, the other one I was thinking was maybe Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, that could happen. Obviously another classic old Batman. My only problem is that Kevin Conroy is so old, he can't physically, he can't throw down, you know? No. no. They could always have like a stunt double though or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, well, that 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 version of Batman is like jacked to the gills. And... Yeah, that's true. He's like fucking a brick shit house. Yeah. <laughs> He's like super buff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we don't have too too long to wait. I mean, this is gonna be in the winter, so cool. We'll we'll get our we'll get our answers really soon as far as. Who he's playing, which version he's playing, all that jazz. But uh, I think it's pretty safe to say he'll be playing Bruce Wayne, at the very least. So, keeping it with DC, we've got Jim Lee and Dan Didio speaking about uh, some of their some of their fears and, and and sales issues. And it's always interesting to me when these two talk because they talk a lot. Dan Didio especially talks a lot, and I think they really give us a a window into what is happening at DC. And if you ask me, I think that DC's in trouble. And I'm going to read what they had to say, and then we'll, we'll get into that a little more, talk about what's going on over at DC Comics. So I'm going to start with what Dan Didio had to say, and this is actually kind of a follow-up on something that he said during San Diego Comic-Con weekend. I don't know if you guys remember, but he had talked about how the market was putting out those facsimile editions. Mm, yes. 
and how he was frustrated that it seemed like they were relying too heavily on nostalgia. So we talked about that then and, you know, thought it was pretty interesting what he had to say. But he followed up on that uh, and spoke to ICV2. And he talked about how the market is kind of inflated because of those kind of facsimile editions, but also variant covers and stuff like that. So this is what he had to say. Where my concern comes from is more about the over-reliance on nostalgia, speculator marketing, variant covers, and a lot of things that seem to be driving numbers and sales to give the appearance of a healthy industry, but it's not built on the ongoing success of the individual titles in order to keep those numbers successful and maintained. If we're creating these artificial highs on a continual basis, if something pulls that apart, does it break the infrastructure overall, and how do we change these buying patterns in that fashion to build something that is a more healthy business going forward? So that to me is really interesting because I understand the the point that you would like the driving force of your sales to be the new books. You want Batman number, you know, 76 which just came out, to do better than Batman number 310 from 1975. You know, whatever it is. The facsimile edition of that. Right. That's what you want. And I understand how that could be troubling and concerning. But if you intend to keep publishing the facsimile editions, you're making your money. Right? It's the same money. I agree with you where I just... I understand his frustration. Comics as a medium are a weird place. You know, it's it's in an evolution point and in the same way that uh, that the direct market created a consumer boom in the 90s, I think we're on the cusp of that in a digital future, but I just don't think we're ready for it yet. You know, I think that there is a huge contingency of comic book fans that are still attached to the way that they have traditionally bought comics and the fact that they as a company are in this weird and and all comic companies right are in this weird position where the most profitable thing that you can do is as actually be an ip factory is 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 to own the rights to something that gets made into a movie a tv show or whatever and you have a, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, MCU, Walking Dead situation on your hands where all of a sudden you're making money hand over fist on merchandise and the brand, you know, uh, of, of, a, of an IP or of its characters. And that is a tough place to be because it, there's a lot of overhead in making comics if they don't sell, you know, like comics can certainly be profitable, but the, the margins are razor fucking thin. You know, the difference between success and failure is like not super wide. And I understand like being concerned about like having the books that you're betting on that you want to be the future of the company, not selling as well as you'd like to. But if you're making your money on the nostalgia and all of the other crap, does that really matter that much? You know, like I ultimately at the end of the day, you're a business. And if you can, 
you know, <laughs> fund the, the 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 real shit from some of the nostalgia buyers. Like, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing while you're trying to f- answer the question of, well, why aren't people buying the current books? Because that's the real thing, right? Is you can complain all you want that it's built on nostalgia and that you have these concerns, but you're in charge of the company, man. So you have to ask yourself the question of why, why is this happening? Why don't people care about, you know, Tom King's Batman 70, whatever versus a reprint of something from the seventies. And we've talked about that a lot. A lot of those comics were self-contained. A lot of those comics are way, way more new user friendly. And we see DC trying to pivot and make, moves to have more books that appeal to that kind of reader. I think that's the answer. And I think they just haven't seen the fruits of those things happen yet. And I think Dan Didio is frustrated and he's voicing his frustrations in a very public way. And you can't do that when you're the fucking head of a company, you know, like, and I, I, to me, that's how I read this. It's that like, yeah, I think you're right. DC is probably in trouble. I think every comic book company is in trouble. You know why Marvel's not in trouble? Because they have a multi-fucking-million, a billion dollar at this point movie franchise that they've built over the course of 10 years, and it's fucking monolithic. And when that bubble eventually bursts, it doesn't even fucking matter because they made such a cultural impact and... Even if, like, this phase, right, like we talked about last week or two weeks ago or whatever, like, doesn't maintain the hype and doesn't keep it up, nobody's gonna, like, people are gonna remember the 10 years of MCU movies that they loved, and there's a whole generation of kids now that are imprinted on Iron Man and Captain America and the Avengers, and that's, that's where the money is. It's it is the nostalgia and not that it's can only be the nostalgia, but it's the love of the brand of the character to the point where you're the kind of person who, like us, you know, grew up on some of these characters and still has that connection decades later, you know, and is connected and wants to buy the stuff and read the books and care about it. You get them when they're young and Marvel's hot right now and they're riding a wave right now. But when that wave crests, they've got another one 10 years from now. They just wait until those seeds are ready to be, you know, harvested again. That'd be the hope. So the thing is, comics are the only industry that I can think of in which the conversation is constantly about how disparate the situation like how bad (laughs) yeah how bad things are it's the only industry that i can think of where it's like that and that's like not inspiring and so i don't know i feel like dan didio probably should should not say these things in public or at least not as much i don't know but it's his it's his you know up to him whatever he feels like he wants to say it's tough. I think you're right that like it's it's not a good look for him to say those things, but I do appreciate his transparency. You know, because like it does give us insight that we wouldn't have otherwise, you know, and hopefully makes people think about about the real issue there, right? Of like what is the reason that comics struggle to sell, you know? It's it's not up to the readers to think about that. It's up to him to think about that. Oh, I just mean even like the community. He should focus on answering the question instead of asking it 
in this interview. The community, the community of who of like the, publishers uh, and stuff like that, you know, like like the all of the people making comics, like th- to think about that kind of question of like, I mean, yeah, but you think they're not? Oh no, that's true. You, you think anyone who sees <laughs> that their th- what their money looks like isn't like, well, how come we're not making more money? Everyone's thinking <laughs> that's about that's a great it. point. He doesn't need to inspire that conversation. What he needs to do is figure out the solution, and the solution is to put out books that people want to read, you know, and that's not, that's not science. It's magic, right? And magic is harder to come by. It's just, uh, it's a problem that comics can't solve without a massive upheaval that will inevitably alienate a certain segment of the audience that they already have. And I don't know that that's worth the gamble. So hopefully Jim Lee and Dan Didio don't simply talk about the problems hopefully they're working on solutions with other very intelligent people and that between them and whatever marvel's doing and of course whatever image and whoever else is doing that they can think up ways to solve this problem if you ask me this is the last thing i have to say on this the answer lies in them working together interesting there there needs to be a way to consume their content digitally under one house. I firmly believe that. So, moving right along, J. Michael Straczynski, who is a writer who's had an interesting career in comics, is teaming up with Mike Deodato Jr. for The Resistance, which is a superhero book. Uh, it's a teen superhero book that's actually going to be what kicks off a shared universe for a new publisher called Artists, Writers, and Artisans that uh, Bill Jemis is uh, spearheading. Now, first I'm going to tell you guys sort of what the book is about. Uh, Axel Alonso, who's the former um, editor-in-chief at Marvel, is the chief creative officer over at uh, AWA, And he said, the resistance is the series that lays down the foundation for our shared universe, a universe that is rooted in the 21st century. He talks about the resistance as world building at its finest by two elite creators working at the height of their talents. So um, he kind of describes a little bit of what the book is about. He says, born under a cloud, they must discover who they are why they possess these powers, and what, if any, responsibility they bear for what happened. Are they harbingers of perils to come, or Earth's last hope? So, J. Michael Straczynski also spoke a little bit about what this book is. He said, DC and Marvel are products of the times that produced them. DC, which came into prominence in the 40s and 50s, a very conservative time, was people... was peopled largely by authority figures batman is a cop superman is a cop green lantern green lantern is an interstellar cop hawkman is another interstellar cop flash is a cop scientist and so on marvel hit its stride during the anti-authoritarian 60s and that's reflected by its heroes the hulk and thor answer to no one spider-man is a kid the x-men are on the run from the government you get the idea these were the paradigms then What Axel and I did in the beginning of this process was to ask, long before we dialed into individual stories, was, what is the paradigm now? 
Where are we as a people, a country, a world, and what stories do we need to hear, not just to entertain, but to ennoble and uplift? We wanted to give readers, especially millennials, something that would impart a measure of hope without undue cotton candy while confronting dead-on the real challenges we face as a people. Governments can track down who survived and who didn't for their own purposes. Corporations want them. Some are frightened by them or upset that they survived while other family members did not. It's a story told against a huge planetary backdrop that explores what would happen in the real world if 15 to 20 million people with power suddenly emerged out of the population. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm really compelled uh, by this idea. And I, I think well, we've talked about so many of these stories in recent memory where like people are trying to launch their own universes and they kind of like make allusions to Marvel and DC and like wanting to be like, we're going to do our own version of that for the next generation and stuff. And I think that's a nice idea. The, the proof of that has never really come to fruition. Um, but I really like the way that they make this illusion here because it sounds like it sounds to me like it's informed, right? Like it's an informed way of wanting to do that rather than just being like, we want to do that because we want to make money, right? Like obviously the goal of this is to make a successful company and make money and all the other things we just talked about. Right. But this, this feels like the, that goal followed through in an artistic way of like, okay, like examining what are like, I think the, the illusion they make here, right. Of like the, the, the kind of golden age stuff of DC and then the more, you know, progressive at the time, silver age stuff that Marvel was doing. Right. And how those characters were and are in many ways still defined by the time in which they were created. And the idea of trying to, like, capture that spirit of, like, what, like, let's hold a mirror up to what's going on right now and who are the characters we can create from that, that seems like a good way to, to do that. And, you know, um, this this is interesting to me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm compelled by the creative team. I'm compelled by the language that JMS uses to discuss how this came about my only concern i suppose is that he's talking about creating something for millennials and trying to offer them a story that resonates with them and it feels weird for someone who is 50 plus to be talking that way yeah i don't think that I think anyone can tell any can try to tell any story they feel like telling. I'm not really one to put um, those kinds of limitations on people, but it's not that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you don't you you can't understand the life and the experience of a millennial as you aren't one. So to try to create an entire universe that's supposed to speak to us enough that we're going to go out and buy your books the way we bought Marvel in the 60s, um, that feels like a tough sell. That seems like like that's going to be that's going to be I, I think that's a valid point. I think the only reason I'd push back on it is because I think about like using Marvel as the example, right? Like the whole anti-authoritarian thing and like 
you know, again, like looking at like characters like Spider-Man and the X-Men, like those were written by Stan Lee when he was, you know, a middle-aged dude. And there are some themes like that are universal and can translate. And I, I, I think that's a valid concern, but I don't, I don't know that it's one that's necessarily a deal breaker. Yeah. I mean, you know, Stan created Spider-Man when, when he was 40, uh, at at a time where you were watching, you know, the race riots and you're watching, you know, like it was pretty clear what the narrative was. And we're so far removed from that to now. I'm very compelled to find out what JMS thinks is the thing now, you know, uh, can it work? Of course it could work. Anything could work. And, th- and they're very talented. So whatever. But, uh, I'm just very interested in seeing what he thinks is happening now. Um, what is what is what does AWA's the resistance look like if it's a product of our time? That that's what has me interested. Is like I think that there's a real chance for something compelling there, and like using a new set of superheroes to tell stories in that same kind of way. Yeah. Well, uh, we're not getting it anytime soon. 2020. Because, uh, the Resistance won't be out until spring 2020 when AWA launches their their first uh, their first wave of books. So I'm interested to read it. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so next up, Disney is debating whether or not they can have Deadpool have his cake and eat it too. Deadpool, obviously, the movies we've gotten so far are R-rated. Disney does not make R-rated Marvel movies. Can Deadpool be R-rated in his solo films and PG-13 in his appearances alongside other MCU characters? That's the debate that is happening right now uh, over at Disney. According to Variety's Brett Lang, he tweeted out, Iger notes X-Men, Deadpool... Oh, well, that's actually... Um, that, well, yeah, it's part of a larger tweet. Uh, Iger notes X-Men, Deadpool, Fantastic Four are now under Marvel Studios' Chief Kevin Feige's control. Good to know. Hear from sources that there are debates about whether Deadpool can move seamlessly between R-rated solo outings and PG-13 rated MCU movies. This is actually an idea that we had talked about in the past, whether or not that could work. And uh, I understand why there's a debate there, because it could be confusing. There could be there could be some confusion as to what Deadpool you can expect to get. Uh, does, does Deadpool work the same if he has an R-rated film come out and then the very next year... Spider-Man 4 comes out and Deadpool's the team-up character. I I think it can work. And I think I've expressed that position in the past in this show, and I'm, I'm going to maintain it because there are examples of Deadpool in non-R-rated capacities. Um, and I, I don't think you have... I don't think... Okay, so here, here's the thing. I think the idea of Deadpool in you know, a solo capacity needing an R rating is valid. 
I think like a Deadpool that is like bloody and disgusting and, and, you know, crude and cursing and all those things are like, those are hallmarks of the character. And I don't think that they should go away, but I think that there are plenty of, uh, either in universe or in character explanations that you can provide to have Deadpool still be consistently the same character without actually having him to have to do some of those things. Right. Like sure. you made the mention of Spider-Man. If he does a team up with Spider-Man, you could explain it away by him being like, oh, oh you know what? Uh, he's 16 or whatever. Like, I don't want to curse in front of him or I'm not going to chop someone's head off in front of him. He's in high school. You know, like you can have those things play and probably work. You could have Deadpool break the fourth wall at some point, you know, and like, you know, have that be in a way where to the other characters in the universe, it's played Oh, He's fucking crazy. You know, and to us, it's him acknowledging that he can't curse in this movie because it's PG-13. Like, there are, and that's an in-canon Deadpool thing to do, right? Like, acknowledge that he's in a movie or in a book. Um, So I I think, or you could have another character, like uh, the way that they had Colossus play off of him, where there's a character who's very uptight, and, like, when he tries to curse or be gross, he cuts him off and what, you know what I mean? Like there's so many ways you can make something like that happen and make sense. It all just has to be written well. And if it's written well, you won't care. I wonder if Deadpool's fourth wall breaking works in the MCU. I don't think it works as a consistent thing. I think it could work as a like one-off kind of gag thing. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. I think, I think it's funny that we're talking about Deadpool like this because he was I'm not he wasn't irrelevant but before his movie I didn't I didn't think that Deadpool would become what he's become we're talking about Deadpool more than Wolverine as far as the acquisitions yeah that uh Disney got I feel like Deadpool has always been like a sleeping giant like that where like he has a huge fan base and all he need all he needed was like a mainstream People needed a taste. Sure, sure. It's just really, it's just really interesting that this is the character we're talking. Yeah, about, that it's so important, it, and it is. It's so important what happens with him here. This transition. Mm-hmm. So very, very interested to see how they handle it. What do you think will happen? Do you think that they'll keep giving him R-rated solo movies? Yes, I think that despite what. Despite Disney's track record for R-rated movies and whatnot, you would have to be dumb not to continue to do what's working. Yeah, it's working. Just keep doing it. I think you. I, th- I think you. You do exactly what they're discussing. Having him have his own solo R-rated films, keep that going, but then also have him interact with the wider MCU as a PG-13 character. Do you think that'll work? Yes, I think it will work because I think that people, the people who are allowed to go see R-rated movies will want to see him that way. But then there's a whole other segment of the audience that can't really engage with Deadpool because they're not allowed to. So young people will get to enjoy him as well. Where I think it could be a problematic is if you have Deadpool appear too much. I, I feel like Deadpool works for me in doses. Yeah. So a movie every two years is totally cool. But if he starts appearing in his own movie, then maybe there's an X-Force. Then maybe he teams up with Spider-Man. Then you're getting to a weird area where 
even in comics, I don't care about him anymore because it's all. Yeah, so much. I totally agree. Uh, I don't want that to happen. Because I, I used to really be a fan of the character, and then it just hit like, like Joker level of like saturation in terms of like popular culture's mentality, you know. And it's just like I have had enough, you know. <laughs> yep. That's I like him best in an ensemble because you get him to bounce off people, and it's not just all. LOL, random unicorns, chimichangas, you know. <laughs> The only time I've ever liked Deadpool really was in the Rick Remender X-Men run mm. where he had people to play off of who knew how stupid he was <laughs> and didn't engage with him to be funny. They engaged with him because they had to because their lives depend right. on it. And they're relying on a moral. <laughs> <laughs> Last news is very confusing for me. So hopefully you can help me out with this. ABC is looking for a replacement for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is coming up on its last season uh, when it debuts this fall. They want to replace it with a female superhero show. Now, this would be, from what Deadline is reporting, this would be a sort of... It would be a series focused on a singular hero. Uh, so ABC Entertainment President Carrie Carrie Burke uh, spoke to Deadline and she said, I have spoken to Marvel and we are in active talks about one project in particular. The only additional information that they were given was that the, char- the character would be something brand new mostly. And that the series would fit in with its strategy of female-focused superheroes. Now... Originally, we had talked about ABC developing a female-focused superhero show by Alan Heinrich. Right. We reported that uh, maybe it was earlier in the year, and that's not happening anymore. That was that got scrapped. We don't even know exactly what it was focused on. But the reason why I find this to be confusing is that they simultaneously say that it would be something brand new, mostly. And that they were talking about a particular character. What does that mean? Is it brand new as in a a character that hasn't appeared on screen yet? Or not quite? Or is it a brand new character? Or it could mean that they're doing something new. Like this is a brand new thing. With a specific character in mind. Like um, one of the things that came to mind for me was like. I wonder if they mean that, like, this is going to be a She-Hulk show, but it's it's like a courtroom drama more than a superhero thing. Is it a is it a subversion of superhero trope, or is it a Kamala Khan Miss Marvel situation, right? Where it's like we're an established brand and doing something totally new. I think that they're in a weird position because you can't do, like, let's say for example, I would love a She-Hulk show. I think She-Hulk is fantastic. The problem is that there's another part of She-Hulk where she's not a lawyer. She's actually a big green rage monster. And that is very hard to do on an ABC television show because of how expensive that would be. To be that way like all the time too. No. She actually goes between. She can be – a Jennifer Walters has a regular appearance but she also has – Really? Yeah. Like I've only seen her in other things and I thought the thing was that she's – She-Hulked out. 
Because, like, she goes to... I've seen her, like, in courtrooms and stuff, like, as She-Hulk. Thing that's changed over time, or... I've seen her both ways in the comics, but maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I've seen her. I've only really, like, interacted with her as, like, a member of, like, the Fantastic Four or, like, you know, like, in the, like, Daredevil, like, sometimes Spider-Man, you know, like, just as that kind of thing. And I feel like she's always in chill form. Yeah. Um, now you got me wondering. Now you have me wondering. I was pretty confident in what I was I saying. I was too. Like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. We gotta get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I'm. I'm almost positive that she can. She can go between. But in any event, the point is that e- whether she can go between or not, it's still a very difficult thing to do because that's that's going to be constant yeah. CG, right? And and so that's that's kind of a problem. There was a lot of talk about a possible jessica jones show for a while and i wonder if they wouldn't maybe revisit that you mean like a new jessica jones show a new jessica jones show that would be more focused on her as an investigator because the 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 netflix show was long form narrative based so it was like maybe one investigation and maybe not even an investigation that was just her job we didn't see it that much Maybe this show could be more focused on that. Um, there are a lot of ways they can go, but there aren't a lot of characters that stand out to me as candidates for a solo show. I feel like it's tough because, like, you need characters that are big enough to carry a show, but that aren't big enough to be a movie. <laughs> right. And I don't feel like that's a super long list. I mean, like, there's obviously, like, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of female heroes that we could think of but like there is like you said also the issue of like budget so again it's like all right so who's got enough juice for a show not enough juice for a movie and not expensive enough powers to make it cost prohibitive to make a show about them right it's like it's kind of a tough one yeah um i'm interested in what they end up coming up with but uh we'll see on the subject of she hulk um I, I, I'm looking. I'm looking it up here now, and um, I, I'm. I, I. You know what? When I don't know something, typically I turned. I turn to Reddit. Um. So here's here's the answer. This is from someone on Reddit. Uh. Basically, she feels weak and helpless in her normal human form, but she doesn't only get strength from her Hulk form. It also changes her personality. She-Hulk is more assertive, sure of herself, and doesn't have the same neurotic tendencies as Jennifer does. So in her mind, why would she ever want to live as Jennifer again? This ends up being a really interesting storyline for some time and really highlights how different she is from Banner. Uh, so what, and what he said is from the Dan Slot run. So that's a more, that's like a more recent thing. Um, but yeah, so she can, she chooses not to. Right. I was like, wait, I'm sure in Civil War she appeared as Jennifer. Okay. Wallace. So that makes that makes sense. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Now we're going to shift gears and review House of X number two. So House of X number two picks up basically not where well, sort of where the first one left us, but it doesn't elaborate on that necessarily. It just takes us all the way back yeah. to show us who was apparently the most important mutant of all time, 
Moira McTaggart. What a reveal. That was crazy. If you'll remember, I made the prediction that when Charles was reading her mind, that that was what was happening. He was getting a glimpse into the future and seeing how, you know, his future, his dream had failed. And that was what radicalized him. And I was right that that happened in one of her lifetimes. Unbelievable. Um, and it's so interesting because Moira has obviously been an important figure in the life of Charles Xavier and, you know, in, in the lives of, of, of mutants. But she herself is not a mutant. Or, ha- I should say, has not been a mutant. You know what was something I thought was really interesting? Was uh, this cool little lore thing that kind of plays into the idea that she's always been a mutant is that uh, she actually gets the legacy virus. Which, this was like kind of this around the same time that like uh, Mystique had made a, a human-only version, but... Um, before that, the explanation was that, oh, well, you know, her kid's a mutant. She spent all this time around mutants and studying them, and you know, maybe that's how she got it. But um, you know, I, I guess right. maybe that plays into the idea that she's always been a mutant. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's incredible, this idea that she's had uh, these, these ten lives. Or, yeah, these ten lives. And we get to see there's like a whole huge... Um, infographic that showcases what happened the 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 major life experiences in her that she that she has in each of these different lives turning her into a mutant whose mutant power is reincarnation i've never seen that before that's different than resurrection in this case so like you know wolverine could die right but then he just comes back to life. Mm-hmm. She dies, and she doesn't come back to life. She goes back in time to restart her life. Right. Which is an incredibly interesting concept for a mutant. And again, it speaks to the to, to, to the genius of Jonathan Hickman to think of that. Maybe I'm wrong, and there are other mutants that do that, but I have absolutely never seen that before. Yeah, it's new to me, for sure. But uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting was looking at the infographic that you called out. Did you notice that Life 6 is no is not on the timeline? I was going to hold that, but uh, that's... I'm sorry, we, you brought right. it up, and I, I'm so fucking interested in that. Yeah, uh, we don't know what Life 6 is, and I guess it's possible that this is Life 6, right? I thought this was supposed to be 11, oh, though. right, yeah, this would have to be 11, yeah. Right? Yeah, so I don't know. I I thought that was super interesting, and I, I thought it was really interesting how ten is the Moira that we know. Is it right? I mean, that's what I took from the timeline. Because something I thought was interesting was if you look at the timeline, there are events on the timeline that are not in the issue. So, like in the Apocalypse timeline, uh, the year after she awakens Apocalypse, Apocalypse kills Xavier, and two years later he kills Magneto. That's not represented on the page and if you look at the black bar timeline there is there are events that don't necessarily look like they line up with what i know of moira like they say it says moira and xavier recruit magneto uh in when she's 43 when she's 47 there's a schism there's a genocide at genosha uh and then it says at 50 she fakes her death with the shiar golem that is a thing that happened and I, hold on, I actually, I pulled it up. She, I know it's the thing is that she gets on a plane. Yeah, so it's uh, during the legacy virus thing, 
right? Like she gets hurt in an attack on her facility and she discovers that there's a cure to the legacy virus. And then she gets on a flight, give the information to Charles, and then she dies in his arms. And then we end up later finding out that that was the Shi'ar Golem. So I'm thinking that that's what's... That's the event that's being referenced on the timeline there. Right. One of the interesting things about this is that there are several things here that are things that actually did happen. And so on some level, what Jonathan is doing is taking these wild events that took place that have taken place in actual comics that represent Mora's life and making them work together cohesively for his story, which I love. Um, but of course, adding his own flavor to that. This is some Grant Morrison shit. It is, it is, it is. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that makes it so compelling, too, is like, Maura McTaggart is just not a character that you think about. She's not a character that you think about. But then making yeah. her, showing all these different lives that she's had, and the way that it starts, it is just such a such a powerful um uh well i guess not not exactly the way that it starts but the first life that she lives i think i think it's her first life that's how it starts where the first the first page is basically just telling the life of how she had a family and right died at 74 peacefully and whatever and had like a predictable mostly pleasant and not extraordinary at all life all right, so then what I'm referring to is her third life. Okay. Her third life where she creates the um, the cure for, for being a mutant. Right. That's that whole sequence where Mystique and Destiny and Pyro have infiltrated um, her research center and they murder her. Gr- gruesome murder. Pyro yeah. burns her up. That was horrific but not before destiny basically explains to her listen uh you can't do what you're trying to do if you do this i'm just going to keep killing you we're just going to kill you over and over and over again and if at any point you die as a baby you won't come back you've got maybe 10 maybe 11 lives depending on how you choose to live but We'll just kill you early and you'll be done. I really, really love the the like implied threat there of like, I will murder you as an infant. Yeah. <laughs> that's a threat threat. That's a, yeah. that's a stone cold, I'll kill you as a child. I, I love it. <laughs> and, and again, Jonathan Hickman has this amazing talent for taking characters that you don't necessarily care about and making them so interesting. Destiny here is so compelling as a character. Yeah. How often do you think about her? I'd never. I don't know <laughs> if I've seen Destiny in a comic book before, and but but here she's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I I really loved this like usage of Moira and like expanding her. Like you said, she's already been a relevant character in the history of mutants and the X Men, but like to to show that she's kind of like been doing all this stuff in the margins is like that's not always a gambit that works um but it's funny because you said that you thought life three was the most compelling i actually found the page um about life two to be the well not the only page but one of the pages about life two to be the most interesting it's there's the two pages of just straight up backstory from the files 
And then it goes to Moira actually talking. And it's like, I think a really, really interesting kind of like meditation on the reality of what reincarnation powers like would do to you like psychologically and emotionally. And I am always really interested when books look at that angle of, of superpowers, you know, and like, not to say like body horror, but like almost just that it's like, there are a lot of like unintended side effects. Right. So like the, the dialogue is, she says, which you think would be amazing. Who wouldn't want to fix all the mistakes you'd made in the past? Then again, that was before I knew of the observer effect uh, or what the observer effect was. And that simply by existing and watching, I was already changing everything. And that seemed to be a gift, something of a blessing. Wasn't uh, wasn't a blessing at all. It was a curse. Meeting the love of your life and already knowing every flaw they possess, along with the knowledge that they will never change, destroyed any chance of Moira recreating what she had in her first life. Familiarity breeds contempt, and her once husband could see it in her eyes. There would be no family for Moira in this life. No one to love, no one to be loved by. No no children in the yard playing and laughing. And I thought that was like, that is a profoundly sad and like a really heavy idea you know, to think that like, the, and I think that first page that we talked about, yeah, like sells that so well, right? Where it's like, oh, like she fell in love young and had like, you know, this great family and like, you know, died peacefully in her sleep. And then it's like all literally all of that gets undone to the point where like thinking about how much does that life even factor into her life, right? Right, Like in the grand scheme of things, it's like not seemingly not very much, right? Like her entire life's goal becomes, you know, this mission. Um, and that's crazy to think about, you know, to think about how many people live their lives quietly, right? And would say that the most important thing in the world to them is their, their family, especially their children. Right. Right. Um, that they would do anything for their children. Right. And that it's like, that's just all wiped out and like seemingly not even something that she is that like is grieving that much, you know, it, it reminds me of like almost like uh, Dr. Manhattan of like having that, like that disconnect from normal human emotion because you've moved beyond what a normal human experience is psychologically. Sure. And you got to imagine what kind of things are associated with being a child, right? And remembering an entirely different life that you lived prior to now. Right. And then having the opportunity to not have to live the exact same life. You could do different things. I think that's so interesting. Um, and you almost kind of want to see a comic book that shows her other lives more, like the one where she's an assassin and stuff like this. Yeah. Interesting. There's so many interesting things to mind there. And you just know that somewhere in Jonathan Eggman's house is a notebook that has everything <laughs> she's ever done laid out. Uh, sorry, just one more thing on that thread. Like, I thought one of the things that was so interesting was like when I went back and this is the first comic in a long time that I read, finished, and then read all, all over again. You know, because I thought the timeline bit of it was so interesting and thinking about like in her first life, the timeline, it's like she met this guy and fell in love with him. Second one, she met him and didn't. And like the same thing where there's like two timelines in a row where she spends her entire life with Xavier dedicated to the cause. And then like 
two timelines later or whatever, like she's aligned with the person that kills him. Right. And like, just thinking about like the implications of that and like, what, like, what is, what is the mentality and emotional state of her in her 11th life? And what does a person like that look like? All right. So speaking of that, I believe that she's in her 10th life, not her 11th life. Because if you look at the, uh, if you look at the infographic here, it only goes to life 10 and she hasn't died because year 52 is the house of X. Okay. Because I want to find the page where I thought, no, you're totally right. Okay. Because uh, the page before we retread their meeting, it says, and in Moore's 10th life, she decided she and Charles Xavier would break all the rules. So yeah, I think you're right. This would be the 10th life. What's also interesting to me is that it doesn't appear that she dies or there is no, there is no answer for what happens to her, at least if I'm reading this correctly, in her ninth life. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't say Oh, is that Age of Apocalypse? Yeah. The Apocalypse War. But do you think that's the Apocalypse universe? Oh, I Oh. Huh. It can't be. It can't be because Magneto's alive in the Age of Apocalypse. True, true, true. Yeah. But that's that's still very interesting. I wonder if her ninth life will be relevant at all because she's if I'm, you know, again, if this is correct, she's not dead. She hasn't died. What I think is interesting, too, is that the arrows that indicate that it's still ongoing, that is also present on one, two, three, four, five, life five, where there is year 43, Moira injured in Sentinel attack, coma, gap. She dies in the genocide, right? Is she still in the coma, though? Like, did she just die during the genocide? Like, she has to have because it doesn't go forward. It, it ends at year 44. Fair enough. But it's also interesting because where that stops is also there's the life six would be the one after that. And that's when we don't know anything about. Right. Because it doesn't say because, you know, it's interesting, right? Like you look at that, that one and it picks back up and it says genocide at far away. But it doesn't say she dies in the genocide at far away. And every other end result, it says Moira dies, Moira dies, Moira dies. Every other one. That's true. I don't know. It's interesting. I feel like that might mean something. Yeah, no. I mean, and and again, in Life 9, it doesn't say that she dies. So in two of the lives, it doesn't explicitly state that she dies. One of them, I think you can you can infer that with the genocide, but it doesn't explicitly say it. And with Jonathan Hickman, everything is, you know, explicit or there's more to the story. What I also thought was interesting is there is the context that this is files. So it could just be that whoever these files belong to doesn't know. Uh, that's a hard read on your part. I think these are for us. You don't think that the, that they're intended to be because like obviously there's like the reading order thing which is like in that same style and is just like for the reader. But I don't know. Like, I feel like I remember there being clues in one of the margins of them that these are supposed to be like files that the mutants have. They present as such, but but you don't know that that's what they're supposed to be in universe. I don't know that they exist in universe for real, for real. I think they're for us, but they're stylized in such a way as to immerse us in the story. Fair. The okay. other thing that I thought was really interesting, moving away from the 
the infographic for a moment is that on the page that showcases what happens with the X-Men, uh, there, one of them, one of the, so that it's showing the different, the different times. So it's one of them is the gifted years. The next one is the time of fear and hate. And then it says the lost decade. Now what's represented on the page is Cyclops is the Phoenix five. And that was an event, uh, that took place, uh, somewhere in 20, 2012 ish, maybe something along those lines. Mm-hmm. The lost decade. What does that mean? Is that referring to, is that, is that a tongue in cheek way of Jonathan Hickman saying, Oh yeah, this is the time when no one gave a shit about the X-Men because Marvel didn't have the rights. Or is there something in story that is that that we don't understand yet that that relates to this yeah i kind of looked at that in a few ways i thought that both of those two things that you laid out could be a possibility or it could be a possibility of like that like that was like a dark time for the x-men and like she's describing it that way is like you know because like she's describing each of these things as like periods right like there was the periods when they were young and you know like they're just superheroes or whatever. And then there was the time where they were being persecuted. And then there was the time when they were, I guess, like really, really at a low point because of that persecution. So you don't mean, so you're basically what you're saying is lost, not literally lost in the sense of they lost themselves. They were lost. Yes. Yeah. More is not the narrator narrator. Not then. When I said that it's specifically her talking to the, well, you camera, were saying you, you were know, saying like, she says, and then you referenced these lines on the page, but she's not, she's not the speaker here. Oh, not that one. Sorry. Yeah, at that point, right. it's not her narration. So yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering if what you're saying is correct, which it very well could be. Uh, but I'm, I'm also wondering if there's more to that at all. Yeah, that's my my thing. Is that's not even like how I was reading it. I think. Those are the three readings of it that I can take right. away from it. Yeah. So those are really the main thoughts that I have as far as like speculation goes, I guess. I will say that this is a gorgeous comic book. This this oh, yeah. is such a fantastic looking book. I can't even I can't say enough about how good this book looks. Um Really, just just tremendous art, tremendous art. This is a this is a, a a phenomenal creative team, and there are so many different parts of it that are that are good looking. Um, of course, Life Three that I referenced, where Moira's burned alive by Pyro, that was pretty gruesome. Um, but then, like the apocalypse stuff, looks really amazing. Mm-hmm. The assassin stuff that you mentioned like has a very distinct vibe yeah, too. Absolutely, it was so cool to get to see um, Pepe Larraz, uh draw some non X Men when he went on the page where all the heroes unite to stop Magneto. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and like how fucking cool is? Uh, I don't remember which life it is on the timeline, but the one where she teams up with Magneto. Uh, that that. <laughs> the crazy like squid throne yeah. that he's on it's so awesome yeah. <laughs> unbelievable unbelievable and and it, it showcases 
Moira's desperation, right? And it, and I mm. think that it underscores and 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 again, Jonathan has been doing such a good job of underscoring how bad the situation is for Mewis. That it's so bad that she would turn to a a a, a, a lunatic in Magneto and a despot in uh apocalypse right like she knows yeah she would have to know that apocalypse enslaves everybody right but she goes to him anyway because she's so desperate that she doesn't know what else to do that's the only thing she can think of yeah I loved the way that Hickman wrote that line. It says, some thought him a monster, some called him evil, but to Moira, Apocalypse was simply the only solution she had not tried. (laughs) And I was like, Jesus. And I think that, again, it speaks to that characterization of Moira's consciousness, right? As someone who's lived through all these timelines and, like, knows firsthand how everything plays out. Yeah, and again, it's like, you're kind of removed, like... All right, yeah, people will die. People will absolutely die. But I got to try this. People die in every timeline. <laughs> right, ex- exactly. There is no way to avoid mass casualties. Right. And I think what that's so interesting, too, just because, like, I think, again, when I was looking at this issue became infinitely more interesting to me when I was looking at the infographic and seeing it all laid out to me in, like, cold, hard numbers and then, like, because the first read-through was emotional, then I look at that, and then I read it again just for context to really, like, think about it and chew on it. And you look at it when it's all laid out in front of you, and you realize that it's, like, they're all just pawns to her. You know, it's just pieces on the chessboard, and she's just like, well, what if I try this strategy? What if I try this strategy? You know, and, like, again, like... uh how there's like in an entire two entire timelines where she falls in love with Charles and believes in his dream and tries to see it through. And then she's like, well, that didn't work. Let's go side with our mortal enemy Magneto and see how that goes. (laughs) You know? And it's, it's, it's crazy. It's so crazy to think how removed you would have to be and how much contemplation that, you know, what she's been alive for how many years after all these timelines, right? Like, right. The collective amount of years, the experience that she has. Yeah. It's insane. Yep. I mean, even just looking at it here and doing some like bad napkin math, like this is, she's over 400 years old, you know, or she's lived collectively 400 years of consciousness. Yeah. That's insane. It's, it's so, it's so amazing. The level of thought that was put into this. And I think, you know, we talked we talked a little earlier about um, what what it is that comics have to do, right? And and to, to to get people invested. And you look at how many people are talking about House of X and Powers of Ten. Every comic cannot be this, but Jonathan Hickman is working so hard, and it pays dividends because not only is he a good writer, but there are a lot of good writers. There are a lot of really good writers. You know, Tom King is a really good writer. Um, it takes more than that. It takes. It takes this. It takes work that defines you as an as a as a as a creator, but also work that defines the characters. We're gonna be talking about this for a long yeah. time, you know? It's just so so amazing, man. I, I could speak about this book all day because there's 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 still so many questions. Um 
so I really I'm I'm really curious about the House of X timeline and what it is that's different. What does what does she tell Xavier? What does he learn that changes things so dramatically? Because we see that there's a timeline where she tells him what happens and they 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 create a whole society for themselves, right? And then they all die because the sentinels come. And then that's what inspires her to try to stop the Trasks from creating the sentinels because she thinks that that will be the solution. So what's different now? Yeah, and that, that's the interesting implication, right? Is she says that they're going to break all the rules or whatever. Like, I have no idea what that means. And my guess is that it's like to your point about this being her 10th life. Like, I wonder if this is her 10th life, like what we're seeing right now, it's house of X house of X is them breaking all the rules and uh, how and why that's different than, um, what did they call it? The other thing that they made far away was the other one where there was, where they made their own society and then got genocided. Like, I, I don't really know what's different. Like, it seems like it's a mixture of a few of these strategies where, like, Charles is more militant and they made a side society, but it also happens to be, you know, in this weird sort of, like, pocket part of Earth. Like, I don't know, you know? Like, I guess that's what we're going to find out. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of confused because... Okay, so if 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 life ten is the cur- is the one that we're currently experiencing, yeah, then that that would lead me to believe that that's the that's what the time that's the timeline of the X Men as it's always been. If that's the case, then that means that then that doesn't make any sense because that would mean that Xavier has always known what she told him, but he waited all this time to actually enact what she told him. That doesn't ring true because. Things would be too different. Yeah. Right? The timeline says Moira uh so it says uh Moira meets Xavier at seventeen, but she still marries Joseph McTaggart and still finds founds the research institute and still has Proteus, but then at forty three she recruits she and Xavier recruit Magneto. Right. Then there's a schism. Then the genocide of Genosha, then whatever, then House of X. No way. There, there's no way that what we see, the conversation that they're having, where where she lets him read her mind, is Life Ten, it and 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 this is Life Ten. There's no way. Hmm. Yeah, I really don't know. I really don't know what to make here. I think you're probably right, but. Like the whole the Joseph McTaggart thing and Proteus, like make me think that that's what the implication is here. That the implication is that this is life 10. And the conversation that we just saw happens at the beginning of life 10. But I I also agree with you that that doesn't that doesn't ring true to the Xavier that we know 
have known and see now. So is it possible that no, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. I don't know. I really don't. You're right. Like this, this kind of throws me for a loop. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And I think, I hope that those are the questions that we're supposed to be asking. Yes. And that there's not just something that we're not getting. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like it's the case, but who knows? Um, there's so much, there's so much to mine here. There's so much information and I'm still digesting what I read, but, um, I, unless you have any other thoughts, I want to close by saying that this book is one for the history books. This is, yeah, nothing happened in this issue, right? Like if you read it, you know, nothing happened. The story did not progress. It's in the exact same place. In fact, it ends with the exact same scene that we've already seen in House of X number one. But the preceding pages elaborate so much on what we didn't know that even though we we didn't we didn't learn anything that will we didn't we didn't advance, we are now progressing into powers two and house three with so much more information. Mm-hmm. And so many more questions that are relevant to what's actually happening. Right. You know, I think this issue existed to kill some of the red herrings that you may have set up in your own mind of like where it's going. Right. Like I I made my prediction of like, this is what's really happening in this universe. And it's like, nah, that's like seven lives ago, man. Like (laughs) that has been tried and failed and we moved on way past it. So that to me is like, it's, it's just the proof of like, good writing because you're right that this didn't ostensibly push the narrative forward but this is my favorite issue so far this is the most interesting issue so far i think and it's the one that's made me think the most um and that's awesome La- I-, I just had a, a, one last thought and i have to i have to get out here hit it the only way that i can believe that life 10 is the same life in which moira and professor x meet and she explains to him, or he reads her mind and sees all her prior lives, mm-hmm. is if he doesn't remember. And when he wakes up after getting in Phantom X's body, he now has the memories that he lost, and that's why he says he has a new dream, and that's when Moira's mm-hmm. 47 years old, and they recruit Magneto to do the House of X. That's interesting. Uh, you know what? I have one more thing to point out here because I'm looking at the timeline and exactly what, about what you said, right? And it's actually 43 where okay. it says that they recruit Magneto and 47 is when it says that there's a schism. And in House of X, Magneto and Charles are still are still boys. They're working together still. They could have reunited. That's true, but it's not on the timeline. And their recruiting him is on the timeline. It could also be a schism in which she doesn't stick around. Yeah, like, I don't know. Or, like, that could tie to, 
if she plays her card right, she gets 11 somehow. It's like, uh, that's still in play too. And we have no fucking idea what happened in six. Like six could be the implication. We could learn that her powers got modified and that she could live multiple lives at once or some shit. And that's why some of these timelines are still going, you know, like, I don't know. Like there's, there's still like as much information as this gave us, there's almost an equal amount of information that we still get. We still don't know yet. Yeah, more questions for sure. Yeah, and I, and I think like, like the, he, this is just an event like this done right. Like it gave us more information, but also raised more questions, and it chopped a bunch of potential things off the board and put like five other ones on there. And it, it's just the the plotting of all this has been really really well executed, and I think that's why it's so satisfying. Like. I don't think of this as a mystery story, but the mystery of what's going on is like so satisfying. I think that's really the driving energy behind the story is that like he keeps giving us enough clues to like want to keep pulling on strings. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to leave it there. Hopefully you guys enjoyed our review. Let us know what you're thinking about. If you like House of M or House of M, House of X and Powers of 10, if you're into it. Write in and let us know your thoughts. Do you have any theories? What are what are you cooking up in your own head? Uh, there are plenty of ways you can get us. Again, if you're looking for a new place to listen to us or whatever, we're on all podcast hosting platforms pretty much, including Spotify, including Apple Podcasts, including Stitcher, all those great places. Uh, we are at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold. You can catch us on there. Check out some of our cool content on social media. And if you want to write to us, you can do so by catching us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. We've got a lot of really good book clubs out there for you guys right now. Uh, Alex and Ada is out right now that you can go check out. It's a love story about a dude and a robot. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And then a bu- just a bunch of other ones. Go 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 look at our our SoundCloud or our, you know, whatever podcast hosting platform you like, and just check those book clubs out. They're good stuff. Really good stuff. Yeah. Plugs, Pete. Thank you guys so much for joining us here on another episode of the comics pals. If you want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find the rest of my work over at loopots.com, uh, where I host the weekly Nintendo podcast, the podcast, as well as our patron exclusive show after dark. Uh, so if you want to hear me talk about the new Pokemon trailer that came out, you can go uh, listen to that conversation over there. Um, and then I, I guess I have another plug where I um, I launched a little blog section over on my my personal website, PeteAndBessie.com, uh, this past week. And I did uh, a little exercise that a friend of the show, Matt Murphy, from the Longbox podcast um, has been doing where he's been tracking all the media that he's been taking in this year and then writing about it. Uh, I thought it was a really fun and useful exercise. And even if you're not interested in reading the blog post, I think going and reading the little preamble I did about the exercise and what I got out of it is interesting um, in itself. And I, I recommend everybody try and do it themselves, even if just for a month. It's it's interesting. It makes you really think about how you're spending your time. So uh, PSA for that one. I thought it was a little, a little interesting thing. Uh, if you want to connect with the rest of the gang, you can find Marco at Mr. Marco Animoto on Twitter and Instagram. Phil is at Cyborg Bebop um, all over the place. And uh, you can find Kale at Toto and Toe. You can also find his comics and uh, the podcast that he does with his wife, Gone Global, at KaleWard.com. All right. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to talk about House of X and Powers of Ten. They are 
the only comics that are really on my mind right now. So let's chat. With that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Bye.